On Monday night, after dinner, I looked outside and I commented to my family how incredible it was that it was still light out and that summer was almost upon us. And then without missing a beat, and before the table was even cleared, my youngest daughter, Noah, who's nine years old, she turns to me and she says, jump me, daddy. Now I need to tell you, this is code for let's go to the trampoline and double bounce me. So we go outside, we climb in, and as we begin to jump up and down with her giggling, somehow the conversation veers, and I'm not sure how it veered, but it definitely veered. And then she got this mischievous look in her eye, and she says, you know something, Daddy? Judaism is ridiculous. (laughs) Really? Why? Well, I mean, come on, Dad. The sea parted, really? Come on, Dad, that's ridiculous. I mean, that's like telling us that Santa Claus is real. That's a pretty good point. Well, I had not expected the walls of the trampoline to be transformed into the walls of our yeshiva this week. They instantly had been. Noah pointing out that there seemed to be a fundamental problem with the underpinnings of the text, and then not just accepting them, but taking them head on and asking, not necessarily the hard question, but actually asking the obvious question. Is the primary way that rabbinic Judaism has framed its theoretical framework with confronting the world for thousands of years? Now, the rabbis, they may have been a bit more delicate or subtle with the questioning of what was found within the Torah, but they absolutely never shied away. What clearly was different inside this Beit Midrash was that my opposing Torah scholar was giggling and doing flips as she moved on to the next topic. It was not exactly a classic scene that you see in a Beit Midrash. But it was at that point that my mind, it began to swirl, that this special moment had been handed to me. And it was not not a new one for any parent when their child brain develops and begins to show those early hints of abstract thinking where they begin deconstructing the world that just a few years ago, they accepted it as it was. This questioning, it's not new within Judaism. It's not like the rabbis of the past few thousand years that were not as skeptical or wrestled with the Torah in similar ways. One of the most common lines that you'll find in the Talmud when there is a clear problem with the text is, there's not a problem here. Or when the argumentation, it seems dubious, or it's difficult to understand, the rabbis, they begin their explanation with, Lokasha, it's not so difficult. Now, they're not doing this to avoid the topic of the inconsistency, but rather to draw our attention to it and then to engage with it. Now, one must remember that we are called the people of Israel. And we were called the people of Israel long before we were ever called a Jew. And the people of Israel, it literally means the people who wrestle with God. When it comes to the parting of the Red Sea, one can find rabbis turning these stories into metaphors in the Midrash. In Exodus Rabbah 21.10, the rabbis to take, decide to take the ridiculous, as my daughter would describe it, to an even more grandiose place to make sure that the reader understands that this is not meant to be taken literally, but rather, it's actually meant to be allegorical. They talk about reaching into the water and picking out apples or pomegranates 
to give to a crying boy who's hungry during the journey across the parted sea, to demonstrate that we lacked nothing in the midst of the wilderness. Now, they don't create the story of the farmer's market that suddenly appears within the parted water to convince you that it actually happened. What they're doing is that they're taking the absurd and then they're amplifying it to show you that reading this text on this literal level, you're just not going deep enough. And that truth is not meant to be found within the natural order of the universe, but in the meaning that we can derive from the reality in front of us. But I'd also argue that looking at the fantastical stories in the Torah and drawing metaphorical meaning out of them, it's actually the easy part. What's hard is when it's not fantastical story. What's hard is when there's no grand moments of God coming down in a cloud of fire or if we don't have seas parting or the world being created in six days or donkeys talking or the earth opening up and swallowing people. In many ways, those moments are far easier to engage with because of the mythological nature of them. What's hard, what's really hard is actually this week's Torah portion. I'm sorry. This week's Parsha Bahar. This week is about economic theory. This week is about doing a system reset to the entire economy. This week, we read that once every 50 years, there should be a jubilee year where there's a total reset of the economy and anything that has been loaned out is forgiven. The idea is first found right here in the Torah, but there are actually theorists today who bring up implementing the system. In 2011, in the midst of the national malaise of the 2008 recession, there was a push to consider a jubilee year. In Forbes, there was a discussion of substantial debt restructuring and a haircut for bondholders, which had been raised by Barry Rithols and Chris Walden. Even renowned economist Stephen Roche of an American economist who serves the senior fellow at Yale University called for a, quote, debt jubilee. And he said this while he was a non-executive chairman of Morgan Stanley Asia. The Torah proposes a system where if you bought a house just last year and you got a 30-year loan from the bank, and guess what? It's the Jubilee year. You wipe that debt clean and the bank does not collect any of the money and then you get to keep the house. Now, even though some economists today, they see merit in this system, honestly, the rabbis, they don't. They would say, as in the words of my daughter, that it is absolutely ridiculous. Now, I'm not talking about the rabbis of today. I'm actually talking about the rabbis of the Talmud from 2,000 years ago. They thought this was ridiculous and completely untenable. Why? Well, if you were a bank, hypothetically, and you happen to just check your calendar and you see that that jubilee year is coming in the next few years, would you lend anyone money? Now, with the Red Sea, I can talk metaphor. But when I get out to the economy, it's not going to help me anymore. If I follow this system exactly as prescribed by the Torah, it would destroy our economy. But the rabbis, they're stuck with the Torah, and they can't change the text. So they had to engage with it in order for us to exist in a modern society while respecting that we are in relationship with the Torah. So 2,000 years ago, 
Rabbi Hillel and Talmud Bavli tractate Gittin 36a. He creates a loophole in the system called a prose bowl. And the idea behind the prose bowl is that if all private debts are wiped clean in the Jubilee year, what needs to be done is to figure out a way to create a loophole specifically for private debt. What Hillel comes up with is going to court, handing over the private debt to the court, which is a public institution. And this act of handing it over to them converts it from a private debt into a public debt. And then the Jubilee has no authority over the private debt. And if I then take that private loan on the house and I go to the city and I give them the deed to the loan, suddenly that deed is now in public hands and no longer subject to the Jubilee year. Now with the Pros Bowl system, the court then can turn back to the bank and say, you know, could you do me a favor? Could you go collect that debt for me? And you keep 100% of the proceeds. So why do I share these examples? Because it shows that we are not the first generation to come along and question the validity or the logic of this text. Each generation that has come along has not been controlled by this text, but instead they communally wrestle with it to a point where it fits for their generation. Now you may be thinking that this is just some left coast liberal Jewish interpretation of disagreeing with the text and just trying to make it work for what would make our community comfortable. And I would say that's actually totally true. Except for the fact that it's not new and it's not just for the left coast. One of my favorite stories in the entire Talmud is the oven of Akanai. And I think it's actually placed in the Talmud for this exact point. And this is in Bava Messiah 59b. And the story goes that you have Rabbi Eliezer, who's the great rabbi, sitting in a room and they're arguing over if something's kosher and all of the students are sitting around the Beit Midrash and they go, it's not kosher. He says it's kosher and he's so fed up they're not listening to him. And finally he says, look, if I'm right, look outside and that carob tree is literally going to lift out of the ground. They all look outside, the carob tree lifts out of the ground and they go, ah, it's just a tree. Can't believe this. So he goes, fine, look at the river. So they look outside at the river. He says it'll reverse direction. Magically enough, the river reverses direction. They go, ah, it's just a river. And he's getting really frustrated. He goes, fine. If I'm correct, have the walls of this Beit Midrash, this house of study, literally collapse on us. And they start to shake and they start to fall. And at that point, Rabbi Yehoshua, another student in there, stands up and he goes, no, 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 no. You have nothing to do with this. It's among us. And the walls, they stop at a 45-degree angle. And they don't go back to kind of show the reader that there's a middle ground. Finally, the rabbi is so frustrated, Rabbi Eliezer, he says, listen, you know something? If I'm right, may a voice from heaven come down and say that I'm right. And at that moment, a big booming voice goes, the rabbi is right, it's kosher. And at this point, the students stand up and they say, shut up. And they quote the Torah, they go, it is no longer in heaven. And years later, they say that Elijah was up in heaven, and they said, well, how did God respond when they yelled at God? And they said, God laughed and said, huh, my kids have beaten me, my kids have beaten me. What the rabbis do here is show that authority and understanding of our sacred text is determined from here on earth and in community. This Talmudic story, it's not about the biggest voice, it's not about the chief rabbi or about God. It's not even about the chutzpah that it takes to yell at God to say, but out of our world. 
What it is about is that it takes the cacophony of our voices arguing, questioning, and pushing to find truth. We ask questions in Judaism, and sometimes in trampolines, not to be cute, but to expose the wisdom of the collective, to create an arena for vigorous and honest debate, to create an atmosphere where truth is sought among our engagement with each other, and not just because it was written somewhere thousands of years ago. What this does is that it takes a text, a text that could just be dead and irrelevant, a text that which can seem completely ridiculous to some, and then it brings it roaring back to life as we push it, as we challenge it, as we try to find meaning in the ridiculous. We come from a tradition that goads us into challenging what is in front of us, that reminds us that if it cannot stand up to scrutiny, then it should not stand up. The challenge for all of us is that when parts of our tradition, they don't make sense, when we're confused or uncomfortable with what is happening in Israel, when parts of Judaism or the Jewish people can just seem ridiculous, it's incumbent upon us not to disengage, not to roll our eyes, but to lean in deeper to that Beit Midrash of our generation, to not only share what you see in the world, but then to open yourself up to hearing the cacophony of those people of Israel, of those people who wrestle with God. Shabbat Shalom.